Hi, I'm Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today, I am really thrilled that I have the filmmakers from The Outfest 2019 film, From Zero to I Love You, writer-director Doug Spearman, and stars Daryl Stevens, Scott Bailey, and Keely Lefkowitz. Welcome, everyone. Hi. For those who haven't seen it, uh, From Zero to I Love You is about an interracial relationship between two men, one of whom is married to a woman, there's drama there, and their (laughs) rocky and winding journey through their own emotions, not only toward each other, but discovering what they actually want in a relationship themselves. Doug, do you want to like kind of walk us through what led you to this? (laughs) Uh, Too many relationships with married guys? (laughs) (laughs) That's That's called bringing your life into your work. Well, my father only gave me very few bits of advice in my life, and one of them was write your life, you know, write what you know. And um, so I moved to L.A. in 92, no, 91, and I had realized, actually since I was a teenager, that I was attractive to guys who were already in relationships. Like, it started with teachers in school and, like, the fathers of kids that I went to school with, and... um, Keely, I could see your face. You know that, right? You and I both, my friend. And I wanted to stop it. And I thought if I wrote the story, and I originally wrote it as a novel in the the mid-90s, I thought if I wrote it, I'd understand why it was happening. And I tried to write it from both perspectives. And I learned a lot. And and I learned a lot about myself. In fact, there's a very strong... there's There's a scene in the movie where Peter meets his dad and his soon-to-be stepmother for drinks and they accuse him of having a a fear of commitment and that was one of those moments when I was writing that it came out and I was like oh shit do I actually have that is that me is that is that a thing and I I really tried to write it to write it to exercise some demons one of the most interesting things about this film is that about halfway through you know, it gets a lot more into the psychologies of these two men, um, especially with that scene that you're talking about, like, are you afraid of commitment? There's a couple of really fantastic, dramatic scenes toward the end, which involve, you know, uh, breakups or, or you know, just dramatic moments, especially involving sure. Daryl's character. Um, do, I mean, was that kind of autobiographical in a way? Well, yeah, everything in the movie is autobiographical. All the characters are based on real people that I, or amalgamations of people. One of the breakups between Daryl and one of the guys he's going out with in the movie was supposed to be this very dramatic car wreck and um, hospitalization and all this kind of stuff. And Daryl was going to be in a coma. Oh, wow. There was all this stuff and that we just couldn't afford to do it. You know, when, we, when I decided to shoot it, we just couldn't afford to do it. So I wrote them another breakup scene and then I went through a breakup. And so art art I, imitating life, imitating art. Yeah. And so I actually used a lot of the things that were said during my own breakup 
in the subsequent final scene that they did. Well, Daryl, when you were in these scenes, uh, I mean, I think the two scenes that I'm thinking of is, is the one where you're confronted twice by two separate lovers in the second half. I love one with, being so vague about who I'm breaking well, up with. I, I kind of, it's like, <laughs> I almost don't want to give anything away because I think that one of the interesting things about this movie is how it evolves. And it evolves in a way that's very different than how it starts. It starts off as a reasonably kind of straightforward, you know, but what it turns into in the second half is, you know, the fear of commitment and the fear of intimacy on your character's part. And, you know, if you're just watching the movie, you wouldn't have expected it to take that turn. It gets much deeper and richer. Yeah, what I was going to say about this film, and it's interesting, Doug, um, really that we're talking about, you've been talking about it as an interracial relationship because we don't often discuss this film in those terms, but that's obviously what it is. And I think that what's interesting about this story in particular is it's about, from my perspective anyway, it's about a black man who has really sort of grown up or gotten to know himself as a gay man in white gay spaces. And for whatever reason, hasn't learned to sort of own who he is or appreciate all that he has to offer. And so that he puts himself or makes himself available to these relationships that don't go anywhere because they can't go anywhere. Because on some level, because of the way that he is seeing himself through the white gay man that he's surrounding himself with, he doesn't believe he's worthy of, it, of more than that. And I think that it's very subtle, and I think that the, the racial dynamics as they come into play in the script, or in the dialogue, I should say, are very subtle, but I think that the story is really about this black man, from my perspective anyway, this black man finding himself in these spaces and figuring out what he, what he deserves in these spaces and how to go about finding that. And he has to eventually leave the space that he's familiar with to do that, right? So he leaves Philadelphia, ultimately, to figure out who he is outside of these spaces that have sort of limited him to this sexual object. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about self-worth because I, I mean, you know, certainly gay films do go into that, but I don't remember one for a bit that goes into it quite as unexpectedly as this does. Yeah. Because it, it's always there, and, and and I get what you're saying, but it's like you're also examining it through the prism of race, and you're also examining it from the prism of, like, what is expected of you as a black gay man in a relationship, especially in a relationship with a guy who is ostensibly, you know, believes he's straight or at least bi, he's married to a woman. Well, I think that there's, there's, there's something about seeking out men who are unavailable or making yourself available. It's all, I mean... Doug even put it in interesting terms at the beginning of the, of, the, of the conversation. He said he was attractive to, as opposed to he was attracting, he was bringing them to him. And I think that Pete in the film has a lot of the same uh, views about what's happening. Is it's almost like these men are coming up to, are finding him as opposed to, you know, we even say in the film, he walks up to Jack right. and says, you know, nice to meet you or whatever he says, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> Or something. Um, <laughs> He's making it happen. Do you, do you want to? Do you want to leave with me? Is what he says. Or do you want to take this walk? So I feel like it's an, it's a, it's there's something there's something to be mined, something to be sort of gleaned from the way that all of these things unfold and the ways that Pete views himself as almost a victim in these situations, or almost as 
someone who is being uh, subjected to these situations rather than someone who's seeking them out. Well, but it's easier because that's an abdication of responsibility. I mean, once, it, once if you view yourself as kind of passive in your own life and all these things happen and like, oh, I just happen to find myself with like married men or unavailable men. It's like it takes a lot to then turn it back on yourself and be like, wait, the, the, the common denominator here is me. Mm-hmm. You know, exactly. I'm the one doing these things. And, exactly. and the parents even say that. The, the, the father and the stepmother even say that. And I think that I think that what's interesting about this film also is if you look at the two protagonists, Jack and Pete, both of them are abdicating responsibility on some level. And it's only in, it's only at the point when they both decide to take responsibility that anything actually happens that serves either of them, right? Like they they have to take ownership of what they're doing and who, and who they're trying to be in their in their lives. And I think that's one of the reasons why this is such an interesting film because it, you know, you, you would read the the blurb and, you know, but then you would go see it and really it is about being the one who takes responsibility for one's life. Yeah. You know, that's really hard to wrap your arms around. I think there's a lot of like cultural push to kind of like not take that responsibility and not take that ownership. Because if you take that ownership, then you're responsible for your life entirely. Which... Well, I think also we grow up in a, uh, not, I think kids today, young queer people today are, are claiming their identities much younger. But, you know, for people like Doug and I, men who are our age and older, we were really taught that we couldn't be ourselves until we were out of the house, right? Yeah. We couldn't really live our teen our adolescence until we were in our mid to late twenties and then Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of that is reflected in these characters these characters. Yeah, they, I think gay men go through at least the gay men of our generation, because I you know, when when we were doing Noah's Ark, one of the things that we used to talk about was could you imagine having had Noah's Ark to grow up with? Do you know what I mean? But like gay men and certainly a lot of gay men who come out later in life tend to go through a very protracted adolescence. Right. Which is really interesting to watch and sometimes very unfortunate. I want to get back to Noah's Ark because it was a groundbreaking show. But first, I want to go to Scott and Keeley. Your arc in this film, From Zero to I Love You, very, very different. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, a, and a bit more straightforward. Although, Scott, your character in the second half does have to face the same kind of issues of taking responsibility for your life. Except in a, in a much more dramatic way because you have to eventually, not really spoiler, confront your wife with the reality of who you are. Or is confronted by his wife. Well, yeah, yeah you're kind of caught. <laughs> There's a lot of confrontations. I think he even had to confront himself and, and realize who he was and take ownership of that and live his own best life as well. And uh, that's one of the reasons I really love this film and all the characters is that they're all taking ownership and trying to live their best selves and live their best lives. Yeah, his his arc is uh, very different, and uh, try I tried not to make him. I don't know. I tried just to make him as honest as I could. And Keely, no one no one can watch this film without coming away with that scene, with the big confrontation with your husband. You know, I feel like I've seen this scene like a million times on television or in other movies, but this particular scene and the way you play it is just, it's it's electrifying. It's really, really amazing. Thank you, that's so sweet of you. And that's what it felt like for um, all of us shooting this scene. Uh, I don't think I'll ever forget that day of when we shot that scene. There was such a respect on set and space and silence. And um, we kind of didn't need to say that much to each other. 
We had built such a, a love and understanding of how everybody works. We knew what was written and on the page, and he knew what was in Scott, and he trusted that, and he knew it was in me and trusted that. And I actually remember there was a couple of people on set who are friends of ours through the acting world that I remember hearing behind me saying, you know, you want to see something, come in here, sit down. I remember Doug saying that, and I was like, I don't know what that meant until after we were done. And then I don't even remember you really even saying action. We just went, and then I don't, I don't know how many times we even shot that scene. Not very many. And it was so personal between uh, me and Scott, yeah. and Scott and Doug, and me and Doug. And it was, it was so personal and precious. Um, and he, I don't remember getting a piece of, uh, direction once, maybe, uh, but not a lot. He kind of was just like, you know how disastrous this is going to be. And it's, it's interesting because you guys talk about the responsibility of taking responsibility. And I do think that Carla does, but I feel like there's another layer as a mother that she's got to take responsibility for how this is going to land on, uh, two and a half children, two children, and who knows what's to come. There's my dog. <laughs> Cue the dog. You know, there's a new dog in the family. But to, to have to, you no longer sort of get to think about just yourselves once you have a family. It would be really lovely to do that, but you can't, I can't just today, I can't just leave and go, I'm going to the store. Even in a pandemic, I have to go, oh, I got to, you know, bring this person to that person. How does this land? How does this information land on a family is, is really um, kind of a bigger question. Because Carla tracks throughout the movie information of what's, mm -hmm. being, what's coming along that, that sort of builds to this moment. And you can only ignore shit for so long until you take a stance. And Doug and I spoke from the beginning when he first called and said, I want you to look at this piece and I'm interested in you in this piece. And from the get-go, we talked about her not being a victim in any way, shape, or form. This is Keeley's movie as far as I'm concerned. I think that scene is really is, even though it's not about either, it's not either of the men's moment, it's really Keeley's moment, it's, it's Carla's moment. She is so brilliant in that scene and really throughout, but in that scene in particular that you really get a, such a clear sense of what it's like to be confronted with that reality in your in your marriage, in a in a way that's you're outside of your body. Keely is outside of her body in that scene, and it's beautiful to watch. It was really really important to me that Carla not be a, a victim or a device or just a trope or something like that. And then you can't hire these actors and expect them to play two dimensional people. I mean, they're going to break. They they discover extra dimensions, and I, you can't say that I gave you guys a whole lot of advice or not advice but direction i mean we had conversations certainly offset because i'm a big you know like i want you to be loaded for bear by the time you get in front of the camera but you hire brilliant actors who are not only great at the craft but they are thinking feeling individuals who are able to see into whatever it is and then they have dimensions that i don't even know about so i have to let them do their thing well, and you clearly gave them the space, clearly, because you can't get performances like this unless you trust your actors, you cast them well, you trust your actors, they do their homework, and you give them the space to then do what they do. Some of my favorite moments are the ones that aren't really talking. You know, like, uh, one of the other persons who I wish was on this call, and I should have invited him was Stephen Bowman. 
because Stephen is a freaking brilliant actor and he played David. He played uh, Daryl's best friend. And there are moments, there's a scene where he's painting Daryl's portrait and he's just cleaning the brushes and he just says, I don't want you to, he just says, please. And it breaks my heart. And then there's another scene where uh, Daryl has asked him for some advice and Stephen finishes the whole scene and then just touches him on the nose and says, you asked. And <laughs> that moment kills me. And like in, in the breakup scene, there's a thing where Keeley's just sitting there and for a while it looks like the frame is frozen because everybody is so still. And then she just starts taking her earrings off. And I love that moment so much. And Scott taught me so much about Jack because, you know, I've never been a married white man with two kids living <laughs> in the suburbs. But when, when I realized that Scott, when he was with, uh, like when he's in Palm Springs, like the first scene at Palm Springs, Scott has one line and it's hi. And um, it's the way he is when everything is happening around him. I'm like, oh my God, he has discovered how to play the part of the married guy in the relationship. Like he's literally created two people. Like he's created his family, Jack, and then the Jack around Pete. And I didn't nudge him into that. He discovered that all on his own. So th these guys are brilliant. You know, Daryl. Daryl does these things where, like, his reactions to things. Oh, I know what it is. It's in the breakup with Jack. I was just going to say his reactions what? in those, those the breakup scene. It's like you just look at him and you just break. I mean, I was going to ask Daryl because one of the questions I have here is, you know, you, you hear that, like, you know, acting is actually reacting. And my God, like, you are sitting there and you it, it's transfixing. Like, whatever you're doing. Somehow it, it like it just gets to the heart. I mean, like, how do you even prepare for something like this? That's that's really sweet of you. Um, you know, I I've been through a couple breakups in my life. Um, <laughs> Haven't and I, we and all? I, <laughs> and I think that what what I brought into those scenes was moments that felt similar in my life, like someone confronting me with something that was uncomfortable for me to talk about, right? Or or someone giving me news about, you know, something they had finally figured out and I've already figured out my side of it and I'm going in the other direction. Those things all felt very honest to me. And so I just tried to bring those those feelings and those those honest emotional responses to the circumstances of the film. And I think that, you know, one of the, the great things about my character's second breakup in the film is the way that, that that room is structured so that when my character comes down the stairs and the other person is on the other side of the stairs and then Pete just drops the blanket like, oh, <laughs> shit, this is not what I was expecting at all. And there's something so honest about finding yourself in that situation where you're like, I thought I was I thought everything was cool. I'm busted as hell. And it's just, <laughs> just it's you can't not play that moment, honestly, because it's such a, a real. Woo. This is the first time you guys have, like, well, you're not in the same room because we're in, you know, pandemic land and we're on a Zoom call. But is this the first time you're all, like, seeing each other and for how long? Ten months. It's been a long time. Oh, my God. I just God. have to say, I have to say you guys all look so great. I, think <laughs> you, I mean. It's I, lighting. Maybe not the place to say it, but, man, you guys look so great. I miss you so much. Oh, yeah. I miss you, too. I, I did have something to say about that scene you mentioned, the, the breakup scene, and I think... 
that was at the top of maybe less than a handful of scenes that if in the space that Doug created where we had multiple table reads, we had multiple discussions, multiple rehearsals, there were a few scenes that you just knew, man, that scene, we have to get it right. And I think Doug's passion and his essence or spirit or whatever you want to call it infected us all with a passion for the project. I mean, we, we, we were not doing this to buy houses in Malibu. We did this to work with each other and to, to make this. So it's even more important to us to get these scenes right. We're not clocking in. In, our, in the way we did it, we worked for a little time and then we took some time off. We worked some time, took some time off. And um, each time you're like, man, and then you get the schedule and you're like, oh, this is one of those scenes, right? This is it. And I think you just start, it was like preparing for the Super Bowl or something, if you don't mind that, or, or I don't Super know. The Super Bowl halftime show with Beyonce and Lady Gaga, thank you very much. <laughs> yes, it's Beyonce. <laughs> Doug did so much rehearsal and talk, and, and it was subtle how he would do it, too. He would just say, hey, you know, Scott, I was thinking about this. And then two days later, I'd be in a scene, and that would totally be my choice of what to do. And he planted a seed that grew. And uh, in that breakup scene, I remember being scared out of my mind. I honestly, it, I, at one point, I thought I was going to eat a stapler because she <laughs> chose to pick up a stapler. And I was honestly scared. I think I had to check my pants afterwards. She was terrified. I was and terrified. That, that moment and was terrifying, I right? would never cheat on a significant other ever again because I don't think I could handle you're uh, welcome. That kind of a feeling. <laughs> yeah. But I, I really appreciate this space that Doug created um, and and the people that he put together because it was, I'll never forget this experience. And I'm well, very, very proud of the work. You know, I'm one person on the set. And yeah, I got to sort of captain the ship. But all of your personalities and your work ethics are the things that kept it going. Do you know what I mean? Because it could have been very, we've all worked on sets with difficult people. And that was never a moment here. There was never, there was never a moment of ego from the main cast or anything like that where, like, everybody was just sort of in it to win it. And, you know, I'm eternally grateful for that. But, I, but then again, you know, if you hire people who you have history with and you know how they were trained and you know who trained them and you, 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 you see the passion and you see the work that they bring to it, yeah. I don't think there's any one of us that wouldn't do it again. Even if we knew it took the same amount of time and the strife, mm. I mean, which Doug went through far more than the rest of us, but I, I'd do it again tomorrow. Wow. Thank you. From zero to love too. Come on. <laughs> Keep going. Well, one of the things I do want to talk to, uh, about is one of the most notable things, and not something you wouldn't really notice when you're watching it, because I was I saw it for the first time before it played at Outfest, and it was slightly longer. I think it was like twenty or thirty minutes longer. It was a bit longer. Forty-five um, minutes yeah. longer. It was. It was a lot. Long. It was a lot longer. Okay, I didn't want to say that. It was very long, and 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 it was it was a notes thing. It was like, what do you think of this? And I was one of the in people to to watch it and give notes, as I sometimes am with my filmmaker friends, and um, I did not know how long this film took to shoot. Doug, by the way, as an indie filmmaker, oh my god, and holy shit, like that you pulled this off. <laughs> So why don't you tell us and the listening audience exactly how long this took and, and the, the kind of the Oof. timeline of this, because it is a testament to tenacity. Uh, so we started principal photography uh, October 30th, 
Shut up. And- <laughs> <laughs> oh, you were there. You were there. This yeah. Was a surprise. It was 2013. Holy yes, oh honey. God. No, it was October 29th because it was a Saturday and Monday was Halloween. And Monday we were in Philadelphia. We shot the we shot the very first thing we shot was the very end of the movie, which is amazing. But then the last day of shooting, we wrapped on March 18th, 2018. There's the apocryphal stories of how David Lynch made a racer head over four years when he was at AFI and delivering papers. And he would get a little money and get a little film and do some more. But, I mean, that was an experimental film. This is a narrative film with, with, that takes place over a set amount of time. You shot it over five years, and yet you watch it, and it's just like... I, I wouldn't have known. There's no and, way. Well, yes, because these people have drank the elixir. <laughs> for one thing. <laughs> the, the, death, the death becomes her thing where they yes, just exactly. all eternally. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't, don't knock into one of them because something might break. But <laughs> First of all, they held it together. And the great thing is that we had a film that went over the course of like the, the, real, the space within the movie is about two and a half to three years. So that helped. And what was really weird is that we lost all the costumes. No, not all the costumes. I'd say 60% of the costumes from the oh, very God. first. So we had to match everything or like try to or find like, a nice like, jacket. There's, there's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like all of your clothes that we bought. Remember that? Like all of your clothes were gone. Oh, my yeah. God. Disappeared. Like half of Daryl's wardrobe disappeared, which was actually my, my clothes. <laughs> Just fucking disappeared. <laughs> And yeah. so we had to match things and, you know, there was like, you just had to think about it. And, you know, there are scenes where once part of the scene happened three years or four years prior to the other half of the scene. If you look and, really closely, my hair is different lengths from one side of the shot to the other side of the shot. <laughs> but like, it's so, di- it's so like, minor, Daryl. I could not, it's I could so not, minor. I've seen this movie twice. I couldn't tell. Like, I, I was, I was, All I even. All I see is hair. I'm like, Blonde, <laughs> dark, long, short. No, but they were really good about <laughs> matching it. They were really good. I mean, I can tell sometimes where Scott's hair is just a little shorter. I tried my best to keep the same haircut for five, for five years. years. <laughs> it's like working on Game of Thrones where they won't let you do shit like that. You know, like, keep your haircut. My thing was, please don't die. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you would give us dailies yeah. of the scenes we shot three years ago so we could remember what, yeah. what we did. Just in case anybody thinks otherwise, this was not planned this way. This was about, oh, no. this was, this was about I, I imagine, and I'm guessing... Finances, maybe like like it's a money you know, thing. You oh, know exactly what it I, was, David. <laughs> I I did not. I just couldn't imagine what else it could have been because like this is an indie film. I mean, we're all like I've done them. I mean, I've been on a ton of them. I mean, you know, it's it's always a struggle to kind of like you know have enough money to do it and then you know finish it. I mean, it's always it's always an uphill battle. It's some it feels Sisyphean or is that well, how you say it's it? also. The boulder guy. Sisyphus. 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 The the Sisyphus Sisyphus. boulder guy. Yeah, that. That's independent film right there. Well, the the two things. One, yeah, it's definitely about money. But also, this is a a rather ambitious movie in the sense that it takes place in the middle and upper middle class. And it takes place in a major city. And there's more than two guys in a room. Do you know what I mean? Like a lot of queer films. No, you have a lot of characters. You have a lot of speaking roles on a lot of locations. Yeah. And, and you, um, you could have done it on an iPhone in two weeks and then uh, it wouldn't be anywhere near as good as it is. I really did bite my nails. I mean, like I have two fantastic DPs 
on this. Uh, Cinematography is lovely. I was going to talk about that. It just looks very lush. Well, there, well, there was Peter um, Stusloff who started us off and then Kevin James Barry who finished the movie. But Peter, there's this, like, my favorite scene in the movie is actually in front of Peter's apartment where they talk about, where Jack just sort of is sitting there. And that's when I knew when, and it's funny because Keeley's nodding because I, I, that's the moment when I knew that the movie worked because Keeley and all the women on the set were standing around me at the monitor watching Daryl and, and Scott literally talk about books and their majors in college. And Keeley goes, oh, I get it. I see why they're in love. And yeah. I'm like, okay, good. But Peter changed all the light bulbs on that street. Like we, you know, yeah. like he went and because the, the street lighting in, in Philadelphia has this sort of yellowy tinge and you can see it later on when Scott goes back to the apartment. But like Peter ran around and changed all the light bulbs on the street. And I was just sitting there going, do we have time? Do we have time? What are you doing? Like, let's go. Let's go. You know, I mean, I'm producer and director and I'm freaking out and I'm like, God damn it. But then you get and you look at it and you're like, oh, shit, that looks amazing. But Doug, what do you what would you say to writer directors who end up having to produce a film on their own? Like you were responsible for so much in this movie. And I, I you know, I know you, so there are times where I could just see you just un, not I wouldn't say unraveling, but just short of <laughs> unraveling at everything that had to get done in a, in any given day. What would you say to, to people who are thinking I've written this movie. I want to direct. I mean, at one point you were gonna you were gonna star in it. Imagine how yeah, exactly. stressed out of your brain you were. Oh my been. lord! But what do you say to, to writers who think, okay, I'm gonna direct this piece, and also I don't have a production team. I'm gonna produce it myself. What was your What would you say to those ambitious fools? Don't. <laughs> I would say, given my experience, I would strongly suggest that they find somebody else to do some of the lifting. Because, no, literally, like, well, there are a couple things you guys, well, first of all, do you remember the Braveheart speech at the beginning of every day where we talk about what we have to get done and we ask each other yeah. to respect each other and be quiet and no phones on the set and please don't swear and try. So that was part of the mitigating of that is trying to mitigate some of that. And also, I spent a lot of time off the set on my knees praying. Making a movie is seriously hard, and it's like going to war. And you cannot fight a battle by yourself. It's a community. It's a team. It's a support group. You have to find the people that will support you and take some of the load. You cannot do this by yourself because if you do, you know, like, I'm not strong enough. I know that. I barely got out of this movie with my sanity and my health. And I'm not kidding. Like, literally, I almost, literally, this thing almost killed me. And I would not do it again. And I won't do it again like this. I, I don't think it's a healthy way to make a movie. I think it's also, you have to learn to let your, you know, one of the reasons why I think the performances are so good and that the movie really is because I got out of the way. I tried to take my ego out of the way as much as possible and let the people that are supposed to do their jobs do their jobs. Well, it's mandatory. You know? For something like this, for something that is this close to your heart, you can't have an ego. It has to be about the project, right? Yeah, well, it has to be about... Hiring people and, and engaging with people who are really good at what they do and then leaving them alone. Do you know what I mean? Because you can't run around trying. And I've been on sets where there, were, where there was a very big personality at the top who, who had written it or was directing it or, and trying to produce it. And 
I understand what the energy is like. And I'm like, no, that's not the way I want to work. That's not, that's not the, 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 the field that I want to play in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I knew the answer. I just wanted to hear you talk about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you, you answered the question. Thanks. Now that you look, so, you look so happy and healthy, Doug, maybe uh, you could spit out a director's cut and add those 45 minutes back in. There is one. I still have it. I actually have it. I still have it. Yeah. Really? It's two hours and 21 minutes. I have to say, I have to say, when I watch it, there are moments where I'm like, how did we get here? Because I, the, the new version, the new cut. Because I know how much was actually shot. I know that Scott and I were in the subway station running into each other. I know all these little moments that didn't make it into the final cut. So I'm like, how did we get here? You know, it's, 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 it works. It's just... I know so much about what was there. I miss all those babies, all those babies we made. All those babies that we killed, yeah. <laughs> Artists killing their babies, killing their darlings. Well, no, you have to realize when you, when you cut something, there's, you know, like I learned a lot. Well, so I come from commercials, right? I, I started as a, writer, a commercial writer-director, and you have to go, okay, you've got to take a note. You know, I was being paid for 30 years to take notes from network executives and... Sometimes I would have 13 layers of approval for a 30-second commercial. And, you know, you're like, okay, look, just take it out. Just take it out. I mean, it's, you know, like I understand how much time and how much money is on the floor. But, I mean, it, we all see outtakes and bloopers, or not just bloopers, but outtakes from movies. You're like, wow, that scene didn't make it. While I was cutting this, I was teaching a class, an acting class. And in that class, we had movie night once a month and I got the director's cut of Amadeus. Oh wow. And it's three and a half hours long. There are Whoa. whole characters. There's a whole opera that they took out. And I was just like, oh my God. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, if Milos Foreman can cut an hour and twenty minutes out of Amadeus and win an Oscar, I'm okay with my little gay indie. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> snip snip snip. I have to say it flows really well. I mean this the I mean because I did see the longer version and I did see the shorter version and not having been on set just as a completely, you know, separate individual watching this, the short version that works real well and, and it flows really well. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to ask you, Doug, you mentioned this before, you asked people not to swear on the set. I mean, this is I an independent film, that. right? I would, I like, I don't, I don't think you can make an independent film without like a great deal of fucks and shits and bullshit. You know, yeah, exactly. Is that, is it, <laughs> but nobody did. And even you, Keely, whose favorite really? word is motherfucker. Motherfucker. Uh, but the thing was, what, what I meant by don't swear on the set is please don't get angry and lose your mind and start oh, swearing. Okay. Do you know what oh, I mean? No one Keep did it that. together. Nobody lost their mind and nobody, there were no hissy fits and no temper tantrums or things like that. If you say, please don't swear, it, it tends to like mitigate the person's propensity to lose their mind. It was more to respect. Respect everybody. That's it was respect I mean. for everybody and, and, yeah. and literally helped keep me safe. Well, it's, it's clear that you all, like all four of you and probably other people who aren't here in this interview, like genuinely care about each other and genuinely care about the project. And that's kind of, you know, invaluable in some A hundred percent. There was, there is love that will be there for eternity, I think, for all of us. And, you know, I wish Jay were here. I mean, there's a lot of Steven. There's a lot of people oh. I wish were here. But I think that there is... This movie didn't have to end the way that it did in terms of there's so there's a myriad of reasons, 150 reasons that come to my brain right now of why you would not leave this movie liking these two guys. They should be villains. 
and you come off and right. you go, you're, that's when, when Doug was saying, when we were sitting there watching the shot of, of Pete and Jack falling in love, and I was like, oh shit, I'm the villain. I'm the one who stands <laughs> in the way. Honest to God, I was like, I have to make her likable. I have to make her likable or, or else, uh, you know, all women in this situation or men never stand a chance and it is cliche. But you leave this movie, you root for these two fuckers, you love them both, you want to see them happy despite their human traits. And I, that's a damn near impossible feat. Well, Keely, you've been on like really big movies. And this is, of course, the opposite. I mean, this is a very tiny movie. I mean... What's the difference? I mean, besides much better craft service and all that stuff, but what's 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 the difference between like kind of being in that kind of an environment, like on a Michael Bay movie and something like this? Well, listen, I think the fact that we had this much time was a real blessing. Um, you know, these characters lived in us and they ruminated and we were able to find other things and have real discussions. I mean, I'll be honest with you. When I worked with Michael Bay, he was amazing. He was very open to suggestions and I didn't necessarily hear that going into meeting him, and I was pleasantly surprised. I loved him, but... It's a know, great the movie, fact- too, Pain and Gain. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's not what you would consider, like, a Michael Bay movie. No. But it's, it, I think it's actually his best movie. I think it's so good. I'll tell yeah, you something. Too. It's very interesting, because Michael wanted to make that film for 20 years. And wow. that's a film that he, he, has, he has a deal and has had a deal with Paramount for many, 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 many you know, years. And he, this is a film that he asked to do for so long. And they said, just give us another Transformers and then we'll give you this one. Just give us another this one and we'll give you that one. And he continued to do these films that he didn't necessarily want to do so that he could do this film. So I kind of like him, these two films together with someone who just knew that they had purpose to tell a story. So the difference to me is um, we got lucky in this respect, that we were able to, you know, pull some shit out of our arsenals and and find um, a be- a better story, you know. That was well. That was well played, Keely. Thank you. That was very good. That Thank was you. Good. Steal it. I, I don't Better know. repeat I, it. I don't give a shit. Listen, time. Time was a big thing for us. Time, respect, and like. Listen, let's just not look at the clock and let's, uh, you know, pull a couple no, more no, shots. No, we out. made our day. No, we there, did. I mean, we, we did. had some long days, but we no. always made our day. No, we always and, made and, our day. In I fact, think... we, would be, or we would be done sooner. There would be days where I thought, I was like, oh, I have, I have, you know, three more days to shoot. And I was like, oh, we just, we threw those scenes together. And I was like, oh, I want to come back. I thought I was coming on Thursday. I want to be here on Thursday. <laughs> you know, so um, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I guess luck. You know, the work is exactly the same. When you're on um, any kind of budget, you, you do the same amount of work. Right. Craft service is overrated. Craft service is not overrated. I'll take passion and respect over that any We could have had a little more swag. I walked away with one dildo from this from this shoot. That's it. I don't even no, know who's you got. You got a dildo and a sundress. I got wow. a dildo and a sun. I'll take it. <laughs> I would have liked a hat. Well, Scott, you've you've also had a lot of experience being on like a lot of TV shows. You've directed a number of shorts as well. So, you know, what was it like being on the set as compared to like, you know, a TV series which you're doing, you know, it's a grind. You're like you're showing up every day and you're just kind of banging out like like seven or eight pages a day or whatever it is. Uh, sometimes on TV, it's just like you're move, moving furniture around. You got to hit your day and you got to say your words and you got to move the plot forward. And you kind of feel like, well, I hope that craft service at lunch is good. But really, you take your time and you try and find whatever you whatever you can do to make it artistic for you. Um, but on this, there was never that, well, we just got to get through the day. On this, it was more like, man, I hope we do this right. Man, I hope we bring some honesty to this. Man, I hope this works. Man, I hope... Um, 
everyone doesn't look at me and think that I, I don't get it or <laughs> uh, you, you want to do right by all of them, too. Um, so it is a big difference. It, you know, I think as uh, performers or artists, we're happy to be creating in, in whatever uh, form we can. But the uh, I, I, I personally got the most sort of, uh, what do you call it, um, excitement or... Uh, artistic gratification gratification out of doing this if i could do these all the time i would and i i uh, after watching doug um i uh, did i did make some shorts i decided i want to oh, try that's it fantastic. I, didn't, I didn't so he inspired you i didn't i didn't i didn't write all them or star in them or uh, uh <laughs> produce all of them <laughs> but i i wanted to see well if i could help um, mostly with uh, kids. Uh, I, I did a bunch of shorts with kids to see if I can inspire them because Doug has really inspired me. So I, I feel like it's like a pay it forward kind of a thing. Um, so there's so there's like my, my friend has an acting studio and they have all these talented kids and they can't get an agent or whatever. And so instead of a reel, I, I took some of them and we would do shorts. We would do a short film and put all their strengths in it and try to get them to do something that they were really confident about and give them what it's like to be on a set and prepare them for their scenes. And, uh, and in the end, they had a reel that they could go and get agents and be big stars and then one day remember me. But, um, well, sweet Scott, you are the sweetest <laughs> man. My God, who does that? Wow. It was great fun. That's really, I mean, that's really inspiring. I mean, one of the things that we that's talk lovely. about on this podcast is like how artists kind of make a practical life. You know, and it's sometimes it is about just showing up. It is about doing little things. It is about marketing. It is about commercials. It's about whatever it takes in order to do the projects that really mean something. And it sounds very much like this project really was that project for all of you guys. Yeah, certainly. Well, you said something about practical. And if th this is the least practical thing you could do. <laughs> literally you know but i would rather do this and uh, i have sat in cubicles and i had a corner office at disney overlooking the water tower which is what you were supposed to want and you know i never had a day i no actually i did i had one day of happiness the whole time i was in that particular job but every time i mean i would ruin takes and they know this i was so into what they were doing that I would make so much, I would, I was literally having an audience moment, like in another room behind, and they could hear me, and they're like, "Doug, we can hear you," and I would be like, "Oh, <laughs> this is true. Ah! This actually and, uh, happened. Yes, <laughs> yeah." And um, and during some really important scenes, and I was like, "Oh shit, I got to stop talking, or I got to stop reacting," and that this is not a practical thing. I mean, like I cleaned houses for three years. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I couldn't get a proper job. But I wanted to, I, and, and I had to stay focused on making this movie, so I couldn't take anything bigger than this. Do you know what I mean? And, and yeah. so this is not about being practical. This is no, about exactly, yeah. having a dream and doing whatever you have to do to support that. And know that, you know, if you keep at it and you stay, you know, on your course and your boat is careering in the right direction, that you will get something out of it. That's way more important than anything that you went through while you were doing it. Do you want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world 
whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories, while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is, it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. And we're back, and for this little interlude, we're going to be talking to producer Alan Konigsberg, uh, along with Doug, uh, to talk about how Alan came on the project. Alan, why don't you tell us where you first, you know, met Doug and, and how you heard about From Zero to I Love You. I gotta say, um, I, I'm very honored to um, participate on the board of directors of Outfest, and it's been one of the you know greatest gifts I've had in my adult life to uh, work with a group of people that do, do so much and do so much good. Uh, in the world. And uh, I had an opportunity to really get close to Doug in some of our work we did on the board. And, um, you know, we really got talking about, you know, his craft and a lot of the work that he's been doing. And um, I had been working on a couple of different projects and really sought to work and really wanted an immersive experience. Uh, coming from financial services and banking, I wanted to learn what it's like to be, you know, a, a producer and work on a project. And, uh, after hearing the story, after reading the script, I, I was really touched. And uh, really, the rest of that is history. Where was the movie at at this point? We had to, what was it? We had another two weeks of shooting, I think? A little bit over that, yeah. So there were some key chunks all through the movie that needed to be handled. And Alan, I took Alan out to coffee a couple of times. I, I, I took a picture, Alan, the first time we had a coffee up mm -hmm. on Sunset. Mm -hmm. And there was a, um, a prism on the floor from the front door leading right up to your chair. And I think I, I still have it. It's kismet. And he got up to go to the bathroom. And I said, like, this is going to be the guy. This is going to be the guy. Well, you know, it, it, and for me, it was, it, it was more than, you know, the financial investment, you know. And, you know, one of the things I asked Doug, you know, straight out of the, straight out of the gate was, why isn't this bad boy done? Like, why isn't this movie completed? And, you know, that I realized, I realized a couple of things. One is that there are too few stories like this. And just from my own perspective, the, the, the whole idea of an interracial love story, there's not enough of them um, out in the world. And, you know, that really touched me. And I actually just liked what the, sh the story was about. It had, it was, it was funny, it was sad, um, it was instructive. You really read the script and then ultimately walk out of that movie almost changed in a way, you know? And when we have so many allies in the world that friends of mine that are straight allies that have seen the movie and said, wow, you know, this is powerful. And especially now that we're so fortunate that the film has moved into distribution, that so films do, don't, that we yeah. have people all over the world now that can take advantage and see from zero to I love you. So, we're, you know, I'm very proud of Doug. I'm really proud of the, the, the perseverance uh, of Doug and his craft and also the whole cast and crew. I was always so amazed in, in, in talking with, with, with the gang. Um, and by the way, Doug did put me to work. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! He was there every day. I did everything from like craft services to working with 
you know, with, with wardrobe. I was pretty much, ever, I was even working on the lights and everything else. Sounds so. like it's a crash course in filmmaking. It really was. I mean, I, I just want to commend Alan for like, first of all, Alan's attitude about this is amazing. He's the kind of person you want to have on a set because he's really open. His, his attitude is really upbeat. He's happy to be there. And, you know, I have these great moments when Alan, I mean, he was like running around helping everywhere he could. Do you know what I mean? Like anything that he could put his hands on, which is, you're right, it is a crash course. But he did it with such, with joy. Just, he threw himself into it. Do you know what I mean? I think I remember telling Doug at one point, I said, you know, I said, for this kind of money, I probably could go to Tish. But I may be a little (laughs) old. I'm a little old. So I said, you know, so I'm going to go to Spearman. And uh, I'm going to do it that way. And I'll tell you something, you know, now when I review new projects and opportunities, I, I, I love the fact that I had this sort of ground up, you know, not that I'm an expert, I'm not, but this ground up opportunity to really see how it works. So now when somebody's breaking a budget and wants to show me something, I can actually go back and say, nope, I don't agree. And here's yeah. the reasons why. And I, I really have good insight. So I, I really can't thank Doug enough for that, for that experience on or above just the, the whole idea of making such a beautiful story. No, there is really, I mean, no uh, substitute for being, uh, you know, boots on the ground on a set and actually seeing how it comes together. There's, I mean, you learn so much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that, that was kind that was, of a, that was rhetorical, that was own, David. That was, I know, that was its own statement. Well, well, Alan, what surprised you the most about being on a set? I mean, I thought that um, one of the things I thought I brought to Doug towards this part of the project was some of the financial acumen. I mean, there's a lot that goes mm. behind. A huge amount of work, I mean, the producers do, and it's sort of unsung heroes of the entertainment business in terms of how they provide this this platform and infrastructure that's always purely temporary to create beauty and art, and then it dissolves and goes away. Um, I think that um, what I brought to the table with Doug was helping get things organized, you know, bringing producers together, our other producers together, having meetings, right-sizing budgets, talking about, you know, the uh, accounts payable and things like you know, I already understood and I already knew. And I think we did a decent job of getting all that stuff put together. And, and by the way, because the project had on, gone on for uh, such a period of time, we had to take some extra care there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other part, things that surprised me, um, you know, it's funny. You know, you're on location. You know, we were on multiple locations. There's just an enormous amount of work that goes into just getting a shot. Yeah. Just getting one shot. And then you've got to do it two or three more times you know, from different, you know, from different perspectives and different angles, um, that takes up a long time. So, you know, when I, I was working on my next project, we were making a short, like six minute music video, you know, that took about 18 hours. Mm-hmm. People in, that aren't in the business and they say, oh, can I come? I'm like, you're going to be really bored. Yeah. There's a lot of ways. There's a lot of, there's a, and not bored, you know, bad bored, but it's like, there's just a lot of nothing going on sometimes, right. but just putting things together. And it sometimes doesn't, if you're, your mind works in a linear basis, it may not make sense to you, you know, how a director is really thinking about, because literally Doug was weaving together the rest of the movie, things that had gone on uh, in different parts of the film, Doug was completing. So there were uh, a beautiful, by the way, our executive director's home, Damien Navarro and his husband, that served as a location spot for, (laughs) uh, for the film. And I didn't even know Damien yet. And it turned out because Doug had been to dinner uh, at their home and said, this is an East Coast house. This looks like Philly to me, the window framing, the, the way it's gauged, and literally did stuff there. And, 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 and by the way, um, an enormous amount uh, of work Doug did to examine locations 
whether they um, were in homes or in hotels and other places. Like, for instance, in Pete's apartment in New York, which we shot first, we shot the end of the movie first, there is a, there's a leather, oh, what is that designer, Italian designer, leather chair. There's a black leather chair. And it's a particular kind of like mid-century modern black leather chair. It's right? like the Barcelona chair. It's a Barcelona chair. That's exactly yeah. what it is. It's a Barcelona chair. So when I got to Damien's, we, because by the time, so Pete's apartment in New York is supposed to be furnished with stuff that he had had in Philadelphia in his own apartment. Right. So we rented a Barcelona chair to put into Damien's apartment so that it would be like, because it was already my friend David, the guys that owned the apartment in New York, it was already there. I didn't put anything in. So I just extrapolated stuff that I saw in that apartment so that it would carry over. You know, and like I moved pictures around, you know, from different right. locations so that things would look like they had been moved or they had gone with people. So like, you know, I wasn't just sitting around with my thumb up my butt for, you know, all those downtimes. <laughs> I was location scouting constantly. Do you know what I mean? When somebody tells you we're going to be shooting sort of night scenes, you know, at a, at a beautiful hotel in Culver City, you know, Doug then says, oh, by the way you got to be on the set at 2.30 in the morning. And I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. great. That's, that's a little bit later than I thought or a little bit earlier than I expected. But <laughs> well, because we have to have night. We have to have as much night as we possibly can buy. Yeah. <laughs> and John filling up bar scenes in the background, which I really love at the beginning of the movie. Like Alan, John is like, John just keeps popping up in different places. Alan came to me and said, put my husband in the shot. <laughs> Not a week goes by where I don't get a text from a friend going, you know, I rented from zero, and you know, you had something looked really familiar at the beginning of the film. <laughs> I think somebody, Trust me, somebody, David, if I'd known you, you'd been in the movie. I, I'm like, sure. We, we used I'm everybody. Sure. Oh no, everybody that weekend. I re I recall saying two changes of clothes. Be there now. That's another one. Be at a bar. It was a gay bar, a DTLA. I, I can't remember the name uh -huh. of it. The red, red line? line. The red line. Yeah, red and line. It, we had to be there at like eight thirty in the morning, which is oh, again yeah, exactly. a little early, a little early for me. <laughs> <laughs> to be drinking was, in public <laughs> but it was exactly 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 so I, I i did i did want to say that um this has been um this, that the family that doug created in making this movie is truly special and i hope folks take an opportunity to really take a look at it now that it's out there in the world i think uh, making movies is, is a difficult thing um, supporting the arts is the easy part of it do you feel like you got bitten by the filmmaking bug now alan now that you've been through this I may, I may be working on another project or two. <laughs> I may be. You want to tell it us? It chomped down on his throat and sucked the blood <laughs> out of him. I, 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 would, I would love to share all of that with you, but my, my team of lawyers would probably slap me around pretty good. But if you, if you want to call me for another episode in maybe six months, I think I'll have something Ooh, to share with you. Maybe, maybe season two. We'll, we'll get you back on here with something else. I would be delighted to. So, wait, before we... Before we uh, leave this particular uh, segment. Um, Alan, why don't you tell everyone where they can see From Zero to I Love You? Well, From Zero to I Love You is out on distribution. I believe you can now see it um, on YouTube. Uh, you can now watch it on uh, Amazon Prime. We can, um, what are the other, what are the other platforms now? It's, it's iTunes. You can see it on iTunes. Voodoo. It's on iTunes. It's on Voodoo. It's on Vimeo on demand. Oh my god! And it's on the, and the Aristocal uh, streaming. Site. So Aristocal basically, is our U.S. distributor. We're I'm every, doing. A, I'm doing. I'm doing a bad producer job. I should have had the list in front of me. <laughs> 
You're basically the answer. I think is wherever you would go to rent or watch a movie, it'll probably be there. Right. And and yeah. Amazon Prime. And if it's on Amazon Prime, Lord knows, like you know, that's just it. Like, it, it, it has been through and on Amazon Prime with a partner now for a while. Now it's officially on Amazon Prime. All that's the time. amazing. That's amazing. And I hope everyone gets to see it. It's a really great movie. Thanks, David. I want to come back to Daryl real fast and talk about your career because it is a really notable and interesting career that you've had. You know, you, I really, your big break was in a landmark television show with Doug called Noah's Ark, which, you know, ran on, I, did it start on Logo or did it end up on, was it on, where did it, it start? It started on Logo. It was on YouTube for a while. I can send you DVDs. Can you guys sell it to Netflix and make a bunch of money? It was on Netflix. Uh, Apparently Viacom and Netflix fell out and they pulled all of Logo's programming off of the platform. So, but yeah, Noah's Ark was a a crazy place to start for sure because it wasn't my first TV job, but it was certainly the first uh, lead role and the first role that was so... Um, well, no one had ever seen anything like this show. Yeah, I mean, it really, was a, it was a genuinely weird show nobody to start. had seen anything like this show, and and it really kind of blew the lid off of a lot of stuff thematically because this was about gay men who were also African American and very much just pointedly dealing with these issues and like and and your lives. Yeah. When was it? Two thousand five. Two thousand five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you would have you would have expected that it would have happened before then. It was a world that we've all seen, but that we had seen before, but we'd never seen on TV. It was it was really interesting to kind of see it it resonate with certain people, you know. And it wasn't just gay men; it was also a lot of women. women. Like a lot of the, the the first positive responses we got were from straight black women, or just black women in general, not all straight, but women were especially um, responsive to that show in a way that I don't know. I feel like it it it, it gave it. It, women gave the show its life, I feel like, because I don't know if, it, if it's something about the way women can can emotionally invest in characters in a, in a way that's different from the way that men do or something. But Well, it's also it, a bit of a hunk fest. I mean, let, let's be real. I mean, you guys, right, true. I mean, it's like you guys are hot as hell. Uh, you are too kind. That was, only, <laughs> that was only 15 years ago. But you would think that there would be a, a, a more vocal response from gay men at the very beginning and it was really women who stood up and said this is my show and then i think the gay men i think that one of the the challenging things about that show for some gay men was that we were all playing so fabulous we were not in any way ashamed of of being gay we were really owning our fierceness uh, shamelessly and unapologetically and i think particularly in the year 2005 um gay men black gay men but all gay men we're going through a bit of a uh, a moment of we want to we want to emulate our straight counterparts as much as as much as possible, and with the character the characters of Noah's Ark were not doing that at all. We were very much like, no, girl, we are here and queer as fuck. So you're, you're, you're yourselves. You had your own character. You were not. And it, this, was, it was not an emulation of anything. Right, and it was so fearless that I think it put it put some gay men off at first, and it was the women who saw the show and appreciated how honest they were being that I think led the charge in really making the rest of the, wor- the community and the world say, oh, these people are actually people we want to get to know in our living rooms every week. And it was really, really kind of an amazing experience to have that be the first thing that people knew me for. Well, yeah, uh, and, for sure. and it's also interesting because, I mean, I'll, I'll say this as a white gay guy, I don't know if a lot of the white gay culture 
was ready for a show about gay African-Americans being unapologetically gay and unapologetically African-American. I think that, you know, even as progressive as the white gay community wanted to believe they were and maybe still are, there was a speed bump to get there. I mean, I think that, you know, issues of race in the gay community, it's so fraught. I mean, you know, it's like I'm, I'm finding myself even... I, well, yeah, but I mean, I, I mean, even now as I'm talking to you guys, I'm finding myself checking my words because I want to get this right. But it's like, I feel like, you know, it's it's not even just to call it racism. I think that, that races and especially interracial relationships, like From Zero to I Love You, it's almost fetishized. And I think one of the cool things about Noah's Ark and about From Zero to I Love You is that... It, there's no fetishization of any race in either of these things, not African-Americans, not an interracial thing. I mean, it's like in From Zero to I Love You, it's I don't even know if it's really aside from that one scene where you're told off by by the trick that you're with who's African-American, who says that yeah. you, Daryl, like your character doesn't want to sleep with any black dudes, uh, which is a great scene, by the way. It's really like it was one of the times in the movie that really kind of floored me. Like, oh, there's more going, there's a lot going on in, under the hood of this movie. That's exactly that, right. That now you're beginning to play your cards. I do think that's a really interesting aspect of uh, From Zero to I Love You is that it really is unspoken until people start pointing it out. And then it's like, you can't turn away from the fact that this is a black man in, the, in a white gay world and what that looks like. Whereas Noah's Ark was very much about a black gay world I don't think we saw any white gay men at all on that show. <laughs> and I think that that was hard for a lot of gay white men to, to stomach. I think that they were, they were so used to being placed at the center of every story, white men, cis white men are in general, that having a show that didn't involve them and didn't uh, even really address them or bring them up in a conversation even was hard for them to stomach. And it, it, was, it took a certain kind of white gay man to, you know, to even sit through it. And, and I'll be honest, I heard from, it, to my face, white gay men who, who would say things like, oh yeah, that show wasn't for me. Oh, I never watched that show. And I was like, wow, got it. Or you know? that, that, and why don't, why isn't one of you dating a white guy? Yeah, you know, that, I never that heard would, that. that oh yeah, that would be, that was the, I remember being at the gym a lot going, how come none of you were dating a white guy? And I'm like, because wow. some black men don't want to. It's not about you, you know? boo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm like, there are a lot of white gay men who, at the time of the show and the conversations, or not even the conversations, the declarations that they were making to my face, did not, it was almost like they couldn't understand that the world was not a vacuum if they weren't in it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and that's, that. but that happens to a lot of people, you know, like a lot of people, I, I, and we still see this to this day, is that there isn't a lot of cult, cross-cultural understanding, clearly. You know, which is part of the problem. And one of the reasons why I made this movie with, you know, it could have been two white guys. Could have been very easily two white guys. It could have been very easily two black guys. It would have been a very different movie if it had been two black men. But I also, you know, am very, very aware of the fact that a lot of the movies or a lot of the television series, a lot of the things that we see only happen in a in an all white space or an all black space or an all Asian space. And I was like, you know, if we integrate the story, we'll integrate the theater. If we integrate the theater, we'll integrate the lobby. And then we'll get people to talk beyond the fetishes, beyond just this. It's like, oh, this is what I'm attracted to. So I'm only going to deal with that. It's hard out there. You know, what I think is interesting. And that, that question got me thinking about sort of my understanding of where Pete is is moving towards by the end of the movie. And I really wonder if he would have had a conversation about race with Jack. I feel like he was really beginning to sort of unpack 
a lot of what it what his experience had been in these white gay spaces and you know he had that conversation with his dad about his grandfather and his grandfather's feelings of his dad remarrying a white woman all these things that sort of I feel like was finally starting to occur to to Peter but I don't think any of them would have occurred to Jack and I wonder if those conversations would have ever happened you know I think it's well it's about privilege I mean going back to that one word that's so overused these days yeah it, it is about checking your privilege I mean you know I've had to learn that as a white guy I mean you know I, I I learn it every day I can. I mean, you know, because I have friends who are people of color and I've had exes who are people of color. And, you know, I'm reminded a lot of these gay places, these gay spaces are white and kind of inherently white. Even if they're, quote, not, they still are. My, I mean, my question is, would Pete have brought Jack to a black gay space? And what would That's that what have I mean. been like? Yes. Would Pete well, have felt comfortable in a black gay space is, is sort of where I am. I well, think that Pete was so accustomed to white gay spaces that... That didn't even occur to him. He was not. He was not really en engaging in that side of the culture. You know what I mean? I, I will. I will. You know. I'll be very honest with you. That would be me. I mean, we have to realize that Pete, the skeleton of Pete, is based on Doug Spearman. Do you know what I mean? So it's also like me being willing to reveal and discover and uncover things about the way I was socialized as a gay man and what what my journey has been and, and put that on a page. And I think. Right now, if we were if we were doing it again, and if I were giving them the script for the very first time, yeah, color would be a big discussion. Race and color and the depth of that conversation would be a very different thing because we live in a very different world than the one we started the movie in. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. Like, yes. We we we. We we're in the middle of Obama's second term when we started, right? We were still wow. yeah, we on were hope. just No, we we were at the big we were at the beginning of Obama's second term. That's right. That's right. You yeah, know, so true. things hadn't really like the shootings hadn't happened. I mean, like the 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 way that, you know, I, and I, I just wrote a thing on Facebook today about the fact that I still to this day feel like a rabbit, you know, in hunting season. You know, as a black man. Not even a gay man, but just as a black man. And I think what I'm going through always gets reflected back into my stories because, you know, this is where it comes from. I am the source of this that that I used to get the words from. But I, I know that they would have had they would have experiences and they would have to talk about it and that it would be a thing. I mean, I, there are little bits of it like Jay Hughley plays uh, Scott's best friend and there's a line and you hear it on the phone, but it was a much bigger deal for me knowing who these people are when Jay's character tries to hook them up again at the end and he says, you didn't tell me Pete was black. You know what I mean? And that's a bigger line. And unfortunately, I had to put it in the phone. Do you know what I mean? But it's a much bigger deal because there is some things about that. And even Jay does that scene with, with Richard Lawson where, you know, he's talking about like, they're talking about Pete as a son. He's like, and he's always jumping ahead of him. Like, oh, so he's got baby mama. What He's got problems. What? Drugs? Jail? You know, baby mama. So he's assuming all these things, even though he's sitting there talking to an attorney and who has just or picked out the wine. So the, the other, you know, Jay's character goes to the lowest bottom, the, the lowest common denominator for all black people. It's like, oh, your son's got problems? He's been in jail? Does he do drugs? Does he have a baby mama? Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> And Richard Lawson's character, no, he's actually not a, he doesn't have any of those things. My son is gay. Yeah. And, it, and I think that what that, that scene speaks to so beautifully is the way that so many of us are just accustomed to dealing with that, uh, with a straight face, 
and moving mm-hmm. through the conversation. And, yep. and someone like Richard Lawson's character, whose name is what? I forget Ron. it now. Ron. Ron. Ron, who is also dating a white woman. I feel like he's also been in these white spaces and just sort of gotten accustomed to as an attorney, hearing these very, you know, people making presumptions about what black life looks like and having to sort of, without shaking the, you know, the table or rocking the boat, um, move through the conversation. I want to ask you guys, uh, because when we're recording this, it is the early summer 2020. I just want to ask each of you kind of like how you're doing in this uh, in the quarantine and, and and what you're working on or how you're getting through. Keely, you want to start? So uh, I'm, I'm in the middle of making an album, working on an Yes. Album. Yes, which is great. And then working on um, an animated series with my husband, Shane Johnson, who plays my brother in this film, <laughs> and, uh, which was fucking weird. Um, um, and so we're, we're creating. Um, I'm teaching myself the banjo. I wanted to learn how to play the banjo my whole life, wow. and I was like, now's the time. So, you know, no one's necessarily paying any of us for any of this, and that's completely fine by me. I'm, I'm fine with that. It's, it's terrible why we are having this much time. But Shane is on a series and has been on a series for the past six seasons and then now is doing a spinoff. So it's been seven years of him really being away in New York for a long time. And so, you know, we have each other for the first time in a long time. Um, Do you have a good divorce lawyer? No, we, you know what? We, we are so happy. <laughs> we are so happy being together, strangely. Yay. We are one of the very few who really genuinely like each other. I've loved oh. having my children home. I know where they are. I don't have to worry about assholes, you know, giving anybody any problems or whatever. So, you know, in some respects, um, I'm, I, I'm, I feel really lucky to, to have this time. I feel like I might have been born and bred for this time. I'm in, I either am wearing this outfit, that outfit, or that outfit. And it's usually like the tops of my pajamas, then tomorrow is the bottom of pajamas. So I can <laughs> circulate. It's been wonderful. Uh, so uh, it's unfortunate, obviously, for, you know, all the just horrific reasons, but this has been a great time and, uh, and I've appreciated the reset, frankly. Daryl, you want to tell? Yeah, well, so before all this happened, I sort of had, my writing partner and I had really started gaining some momentum in terms of getting our work out there. We had some producers attached to one project and some other people interested in another one. And it's been, uh, you know, so when this all dropped, it felt like, oh, maybe all that's going to go away. But what we've no- what we've realized is that Hollywood hasn't really stopped. It's just all happening from everyone's respective, you know, living rooms now. So all that stuff is still happening. And, I- and so the work that had sort of gone up, led up to this, this horrible moment is sort of beginning to pay off. And I feel like it's a good... Th- I- I- I'm happy that I was fortunate enough to have sort of built all these things up right before this happened because it, it is this very scary moment and I'm seeing people, what's happening right now is that because we're at home so much, we really have to sort of start thinking about what, what's expected of me and what am I actually able to provide now? Like what, what, like for example, my writing partner and I were driving to a, a coffee shop. He lives in Silver Lake, I live, in, I live in Hollywood. We were driving to a coffee shop midway every Tuesday and Thursday to, to work. And now we sit on FaceTime and we use our final draft with our 
collaboration function and we can just sit in our living rooms and do it and I'm sitting in my underwear and he said, you know, life has become a lot less run and, run and go. And while it's, it's, you know, horrifying to see people losing their lives right now and losing their livelihood, livelihoods, and I'm feeling very fortunate and, and privileged to be in a home right now with the loving family and stuff, I, I also feel like um, this is an opportunity for those of us who are in that situation where we're not having to wait in, in line for food banks to really start thinking about our legacies and what we actually want to be doing from here on. Like she said, it's a reset. And we've been, you know, the rat race of, of being an actor can be exhausting and it can be disheartening. And you can feel like you have a career going and then just start getting all these little stupid co-stars on shows you don't care about and you start thinking <laughs> why am I running across town to be on some show I don't even know exists and do some line I don't think is funny you know all that stuff starts to really start build up and this time at home has given me some space to say to figure out what it is that I actually want to be doing and it feels like Keely was saying it's a creative reset button and we're able to sort of take off and, and start start things with a new perspective and hopefully begin work again, but with a different appreciation for what that work will ultimately be. How about you, Scott? I think, you know, I know you can always look at a lot of things in the, with a negative uh, filter or a positive filter. And, uh, and the positive filter side of this pandemic, quarantine, whatever you want to call it, reset, I, I think it's possibly, quite possibly, a once-in-a-lifetime experience where everyone says... Well, not every not everyone's out of work, or not everyone has to stay home, but a good uh, portion of us, uh, myself included, get to stay home, do nothing, choose what you want to do. Stay like uh, the the time, the amount of time I spent with my family. Oh my God, it takes a vacation to do that normally. Now I'm I'm in nine ten weeks of every day with my daughter, um, and we're gonna have another one in uh, three weeks. From now. Oh my God. Shut Congratulations. Up. Congratulations. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. Having another uh, a little, we're having a little man in uh, three weeks. And, um, oh my gosh. and so it's been taking care of my wife and my daughter and my son. That's to a be. lot right there. Yeah. And we've been renovating our houses together and getting ready and nesting and all this stuff. It sort of makes a lot of stuff feel really non important. Like, oh, should I stay in shape? Mm, yeah. <laughs> One hundred percent agree. That's like who cares? Or, oh, am I getting any meetings? Nah, I don't really care. This isn't really. That's not what's important to me. I guess now you know it's being creative, being the best I can. She's learning the banjo. That's great. Another two months of this, and I'm going to be learning the bagpipes. That's on my list. <laughs> I haven't hit the bagpipes yet, but I don't know how our neighbors would take it. Um, we always, I think there's like a thought. Maybe it's maybe it's not just me. Maybe it's all of us. Where you're like, man, if I only had more time. Uh, during mm -hmm. this time, mm -hmm. if you're sitting around thinking about what to do, then what, what were the answer to, if I had more time, what would you have done? Now you have that time to do it. Whether it's play a banjo or fix up the house or, I don't know, read that book that you've always wanted to do or spend yeah. that it's also, time with your kids. Or, it's also been you know. important for me to not hold myself to some unreasonable expectation of what I can accomplish now that I'm sitting at home all the time. Like, yeah. you know, when this all first started, I thought, oh, I'm going to write a movie about this and we're going to have a script, a love, you know. And that didn't happen because I can't wrap my brain around this as in the story. This is a, we're in the middle of this right now and it's, it's just horrifying to see how inept our president is and our government is 
a joke and like all these things are happening around us and it's hard to process but also like Scott is saying uh, you know there's a positive filter we can put on whatever we're experiencing so whew, I mean all we have now is the present we don't know shit yeah. about the future so exactly. we're just it's just made everything crystallized and simple and and you know I think we all became globally grateful at the same yeah. period on, uh, you know, in a, in a yeah. lifetime. How about you, Doug? Well, my, my Italian's not as good as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, I'll go back and I'll, you know, I'll pick up my Italian again and I'll start working on that. Um, it's been uh, challenging because I moved right before this happened. I, I left L.A. Moved and I to moved New to Orleans, New Orleans. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I did. And, um, and I'm... In an, and I got an apartment, and I, all of my stuff is still in L.A. I mean, the, all of my stuff. I mean, look behind me. There's literally nothing. The couch came with the apartment, thank God. And um, I was going to offer to send you some books for those. Yeah, <laughs> no, trust me, I have boxes of books in storage. I, I am by nature a doer, and I want to accomplish things. So, you know, like I painted the shelves, and I painted the bathroom, and, you know, and I, I've had this novel that I've been working on for 10 years. Oh, wow. And I have actually found an editor and I've been writing, not every day. I went two weeks without writing because I just went into kind of a spiral because I'm, you know, I've lost a lot of people in the last two months. I lost two people last week. Hmm. So there's been a lot of grief and, um, and just trying to deal with that. And also I'm alone. I'm alone in a city where I don't know a whole lot of people. So I haven't had the chance to just go and explore and, you know, like I woke up in the middle of the night the other night. I was just like I was in the middle of a full blown anxiety attack. And I'm just like, OK, just breathe. It'll be fine. You'll get through this. Creatively, I'm still, you know, I'm working on the next film. I'm trying to I'm putting together the next film. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of the reasons why I wanted to move to New Orleans is because when I what I've discovered here is that the people in the film and television world here have the most amazing attitude. And it's how can we help? What do you need? And I've been able to get in touch with and talk to people and have conversations and, and, and start building a team of people that I could not have had access to in Los Angeles. Not for love nor money. And down here, it's a completely different vibe. It's about how can we help? We're all in this together. You're now in New Orleans. Let me introduce you to this person. Call this person. Call this person. So I spend a, I spend a fair bit of time because I want to be ready when this is over. And right. I want to see how it's going to end. I want to see how, not just how it's going to end, but how is the world going to be our world in film and in television? How, what are the protocols going to be like? I mean, like I'm working with a producer right now who is one of the producers on Euphoria. And, you know, we're, he's doing a budget with me and there's $300,000 that's going into the budget just because you have to have a doctor and a nurse on set now. Mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, they're looking for bigger spaces because, you know, like you don't have so many people in an office and, yeah. you know, you're going to, be, you know, think of, think of anything with a crowd scene. Do you know what I mean? Think of anything with a crowd scene. How are you going it's to do be a it? a lot more VFX work. HBO is thinking that they'll go back into production in like October and they'll shoot like just the two people scenes. And then hopefully in, no, in December, you know, in January, February, they're going to, um, be able to shoot crowd scenes. I, I hope to be able to shoot in 2021, and I'm not sure that's going to be a thing. I got to figure out. We got to. I got to wait and see. So I'm keeping my eye on that, but I'm also giving myself a break. I mean, one of the great things that I've learned in this process is to say no. You know, like no, because you know, like when you make a movie, 
or you make two now, people think people want to sort of gleam, glom onto that and go, can you make my film? Can you read my script? Can you do this? Can you do this? And I'm like, you know what? No. You know, do you want to be part of this project? No, not really. You know, but thank you for asking me. And I appreciate that because the thing that I'm learning even more so, especially as I get older, is that how precious life is, how very precious my time is. And time, yeah. And, you know, and I live in a house that has a really big porch and everybody's really nice here and people are out on their porches waving and saying hi and all that. And, you know, like I have this little bicycle that was given to me. It's pink and a teal and it, would, it had evidently belonged to a 12-year-old girl. And I happily ride that bike. Do you know what I mean? I just ride that bike in the park. And I'm like, I'm okay. And this makes me happy. I need a picture. You know what I mean? I am. <laughs> okay, I'll send you, I'll you, should send you a picture. Shirt. You should wear that shirt, Doug, because it would match the bike. Uh-huh. It's, this is exactly what... It's a floral what, shirt. It's very, this it's is very the, becoming. This is the bike. This is actually the bike. I'm sending you a basket and a belt. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, my God. Doug is oh, now... Oh, here comes the bike. Just so everyone knows, Doug has now run out of the meeting, of the Zoom meeting that we're all looking at, and is getting that he is dragging the bike in the room... Oh, it's cute. Look at that. Oh, it's oh, super cute. He wasn't lying. The colors wow. are exactly the same. That's a shirt. Wow. That's crazy. Yes. He's color coordinated with the oh bike. My it's like God. a, what is that, a what is teal that? pink. I think that's his, teal yeah, and pink. his spirit vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any shame about this. Uh, you know what? That's the thing. I'm like, I'm not doing anything I'm ashamed of. You should know. There's no shame. There's no shame. But I'm not doing anything I don't Mm. want to do now. And that's the thing is that life is super precious. Yeah. And time is of the essence. And, you know, I'm giving myself to what really is important to me. Well, we are almost out of time, but I have one question that I end each of these podcast episodes with. And I'm going to ask each of you, you know, very briefly, without answering just do it or just make that movie, what advice would you give for up and coming filmmakers? Ask yourself what are you trying to communicate to the world? Uh, a script that I'm working, I'm pitching right now, I'm really proud of because it's, it's, essential, it's, a high, it's a queer high school film and it really sort of depicts the world as, as my writing partner and I want to see. We want to teach parents of queer kids how to deal with their queer children. We want to teach peers of queer children how to deal with their queer counterparts in a way that just feels constructive and, and not preachy, but entertaining, and figure out what it is that you want to tell, what you want, to leave, what you want your legacy to be. What do you want to, to leave the world with? What message, what story, what picture, what image are you really trying to create? And is it worth your time? Scott? I, I would say, uh, for me, that advice is uh, something that I, I've, I think I figured out when I was in engineering school and became an actor instead. Uh, is basically follow your bliss or your passion. What are you passionate about? Um, and that's sort of a barometer to tell you you're going the right way. Even if you're scared, don't, don't be afraid uh, of, of going towards the fear. But follow your bliss. What are you passionate about? What kind of, and it's, I think it's very similar to what Daryl's saying. What kind of stories do you want to tell? What do you, what do you, what do you really means a lot to you? Um, but, you know, you, you may follow your bliss. You, you may find you might like something else. You might think, I, maybe I'm an actor. Oh, maybe I'm a director. I really like this. Oh, maybe I'm a writer. I'm really passionate about this. Oh, maybe this isn't my milieu because I really like this. So don't close, don't sort of pick out like a picture of like one of the Hemsworths is on a, on a, on a thing and go, I want to be that. Uh, instead, try everything and, and f- to figure out what your passion is and follow it. 
if that makes sense. Because you never know. You never know. You might wake up one day and go, wow, who knew? I love doing voices and I'm a voiceover artist or something. You don't know. You can't, don't know until you try it all. Try all the flavors of the spectrum and follow your bliss. Keely? Mine's not that much different, to be honest with you. is just um, ultimately not everybody is a filmmaker or intended to be a filmmaker, but we're all here as creators. And I think that's really very important. I, I have uh, one son who's a writer and I have another one um, who is uh, more of like a, a dancer, but and a performer in his own right. And he's an editor, really. And um, my writer son, Shep, has come up with something that I haven't seen or heard. And he's started writing it when he was 11 and a half. He's 13. And I'm like, what's your fucking voice? Let's hear it from somebody, you know, in, in this day and age, from your perspective. And it's completely interesting. It's, it's horror and it's comedy and it's great. And I can't believe it came out of uh, that age of a human being. And I just, my, my husband and I are like, let's get this shit done. So I just say, I'm sorry to say, just, just do it. So I'll just say, must create, must, must finish, must finish. Finishing is crucial. Yeah. And Doug? Keep asking yourself and other people questions. You know, like, what's the story that you're trying to tell? Who are you trying to talk to? Why do you want to tell the story? And then, then keep doing it because you will answer those questions in the doing. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, 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 sometimes you have to paint, uh, one of my acting teachers used to say, you have to paint the picture in order to discover what the picture is. And then just let it go. You know, do not criticize yourself at all in the process, ever. That's my number one pro. I think that's the number one thing because a lot of people use a lot of self-criticism to stop them from doing things and they use fear as a way to stop them from doing things. I'm like, you're going to be scared and you're not going to know what to do all the time, but just keep doing it. Just keep going. I think that's a wonderful way to end this. Thank you guys so much. Thank you, Daryl Stevens, Doug Spearman, Keely Lefkowitz, and Scott Bailey. And this has been The Outcast, presented by Outfest. For more, go to outfest.org slash The Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El-Sharif and Ellen Konigsberg. Special thanks to Damian Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittredge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next time.